Welcome to TNT's Hit Songs from Mars, where we unravel the stories behind some of pop's most unlikely hits. From simple curiosities to songs that changed the world, we examine the socio-political and cultural factors that contributed to the success of these surprising outliers and the impact these songs had on society. I'm Tom Thompson. And I'm Tyler Ralston. And together we're TNT. Hey, Tom. Hey, Mr. T. How's it going? I'll do. I'm pretty good. I'm sipping my tea. Listen. Oh, I think mine's better. I can tell by the sound. Not to be outdone. Which flavor are you of tea are you using? Red uh, rose. Laps, no, lapsong souchong, which Ooh. is kind of a roasted burnt. It's roasted with pine needles, and it's like it's campfire in a cup. Uh, you is know what it is. Someone gave. It's like. Does it feel like you smoked a cigarette after you have it? <laughs> Someone. <laughs> I should probably explain. Someone gave me tea once and I'm like, that's very generous of you. And then I had it and I'm like, I don't really, like I did used to enjoy having a cup of tea and a smoke in the old days, but that is not a flavor I enjoy anymore. So it's probably not that crazy. It's probably the same thing. When I first got it, I was like, it smells like a rubber tire. <laughs> and it's like, this is disgusting. Yeah. And But then like within a day, it's like, this is my favorite tea of all time. It just grew on me. Okay. And it's like like campfire in a cup is the best way to describe it, and, and it is roasted with pine needles, and mm. I think it, it's it's a taste that you dig or you don't. Um, as far as like having a smoke, I mean, I've had people come into my office here, and it's something burning. It's like no, it's just my <laughs> just my tea. It's already burnt apparently. Yeah, but as you know, well, tea you know tea is a substitute for a cigarette. I guess at our age, you know, the post in postcoital bliss. If we achieve that, we just have our <laughs> cup of tea now, Lapsong Sushong, and we got it. You know, no, no, have to worry about those unhealthy habits. You know, as I recall, that you, you never, uh, you never succumbed to the smoking of all, as a kid. Of all my weaknesses, that was that was never that was yeah, never, funny, eh? Because everyone else did. I mean, I'd, I'd have my share of cigarettes. You know, I'd bum them off mm. of everybody. It, it, you know, in the days when you did that. I, I kind of remember, you know, back in the day, you drink 12 beers and, you know, when you're 16 or whatever, and you wake up feeling like absolute crap. And by noon, it's like you had never done it. It's like you're totally good. Um, yeah. You could just shake off a hangover like that. Now it's like you're wondering not only about the next day after two beers, but the day after that. <laughs> and so you just kind of have to reconsider yeah. your priorities. But um, I remember one day waking up having bummed cigarettes, you know, four or five smokes or whatever, and my lungs felt like crap. It's like, I don't need this. No. So I just, it just never was a big thing. I mean, I'm not saying I'm, you know, don't succumb to weaknesses, but that wasn't yeah. one of them. Yeah, no, it's true. And I guess you probably, um, you, you've always been pretty active too, so... Yeah, that's, I mean, well, I guess Kurt Vonnegut smoked like four packs a day, but he swam two miles a day too, so. Yeah, well, it, well, it's it's interesting because, I mean, lots of people, like top athletes smoked until very recently, I'm sure some still do, but I remember hearing about top so- soccer or fo- football, as they call it in England. <laughs> um, you know, those, I feel like those guys uh, like McEnroe and Borg and those old days, they were partying it up and drinking and smoking and then playing the Wimbledon final the next day, apparently. so Different era. Yeah. It's, of all the habits to have, that's a good one not to have. Absolutely. And uh, I don't I don't miss it one bit. I would never touch a cigarette again. Were you a regular smoker? No, I went through kind of like phases where I would, I would dabble, you know. Did you ever dip? <laughs> no, but you know. You missed, you missed a treat. I don't think that I don't think that was a thing at all in Can- I mean it must be somewhere in Canada but I remember when Alberta. I first experienced it um it was actually at the beach and and someone was spitting or what I don't know what you could. It would have been my cousin Chris without a doubt. <laughs> it was and I didn't know what was going on. I was going on a road trip. I think you were on there. Yeah, you were there. We were going to Bruce Peninsula. Okay. And it was Dave, me, you, Dave and Chris, I believe. Far out, and um, Chris was dipping. Yeah, in. Actually, I'm, yeah, and I so I heard something in the back. I was in the front seat, and I heard something in the back seat. I'm like, "What is that sound?" And then I look, 
And I looked back and I must have had kind of a look of horror on my face because Chris was like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, man. I know it's a, it's a bad habit. And I'm like, I, I just, I'd never even seen that in my life. So it, it's, it's definitely, I mean, Eastern Kentucky, I mean, it's not, it's kind of the last, ten, I've been here for 10 years. The last 10 years, it's really gone down in, in the people doing it. First year I was here, I'd have people in class. Really? And it was just kind of no. an accepted thing. It wasn't any big deal. I was kind of shocked just having arrived here. But people don't really do it much anymore. But it, the, 10 years ago, they did. Um, but again, with, with Chris and, you know, you're having, you know, having a few drinks, like, give me one of those. And so yeah. you know, I'd, I'd dabble and with the dip. And I remember- And what was the effect? Well, a head rush beyond what you would believe. Okay. Um. Like, you know, if you're not used to cigarettes, you get a little rush. I mean, this is like, you know, on a scale of magnitude above that. But I remember I grabbed a big, you know, Chris grabbed a big wad out of the thing. And I grabbed my big wad. Chris was like, no, 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 no. It's like, that's what, that's what you did. He said, no, for me, for me, this is what, you, you know, and he gave me like this tiniest little pinch. and like, oh, God. Right. And I took, yeah. I took it. It's like, well, boom, who turned on the lights? Really, eh? Yeah, but so would you say like mo- like more than a really strong coffee buzz? It's a different buzz, uh, okay. but yeah, it would be more than a really strong coffee buzz if you weren't used to it. Then again, if you weren't used to coffee either, you'd you'd be you'd be like mind blown. I mean, I had the same thing happen to me with coffee. I never touched the stuff till I was uh, thirty eight years old when I had my first cup of coffee, if you can believe that. And I was <laughs> uh, that's something. Yeah, I was living in Rio. Coffee heaven. I mean, you know, I think to this mm. day Brazil is you know, far and away the biggest producer of coffee in the world. People drink coffee. They drink a special kind of coffee. They call it uh, cafezinho, which is kind of sort of like espresso. It's in a small cup. Mm-hmm. It's not espresso, but it's a, it's kind of like that. And the tea down there, which again, as an as an American, you know, I, I think you know my Canadian roots have me my grandmother you know, have my, have me drinking tea i'm the only tea mm. drinker i know in the united states <laughs> yeah. and so but in brazil it's even worse tea absolutely sucked um mm. again you have your yerba mate which you can it, which is a very common thing in the south of the country and it's amazing it's a whole different ball game it's not even tea it's just it's plants that grow naturally down there that are caffeinated um but so you can't get good tea in Rio de Janeiro. I mean, you get bad Lipton at best, you know. Lipton is the worst. Yeah. Oh, by the way. Every, every time I go to the U.S. and I, I'm on a road trip or something like that, I can never get a good tea. Mm-mm. It's terrible. No way. Um, apparently, though, this is kind of funny. If you go to Darjeeling, Darjeeling's my favorite tea. Mm. If you go to Darjeeling, you cannot get a good cup of tea in Darjeeling. <laughs> it's all for export. <laughs> Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, you you, you get Lipton, which is kind of Ugh. kind of neo-colonial, I guess you could say. It's like not to not to uh, disparage the U.S. that much, but it's kind of like drinking one of your light beers. Oh yeah, regular beers there. I remember. Do you remember? I remember once being at a party at the gazebo, and someone I didn't have any beer, and someone gave me a a a beer, quote unquote. Um. And I guess it was probably <laughs> it was probably Coors Light or something, and I spit it out, and I'm like, "Is this fruit juice?" Like I couldn't, I actually couldn't believe it was a beer. Fruit juice. It was like hor- horrid. Yeah, I mean, okay, yeah. Th- back in those, back <laughs> in the '80s, that probably was the case. But since the microbrew revolution, mm. it's different. Yeah, um, you can still get Bud and Bud Light, uh, light beer from Miller, and all that stuff. And there's a certain strategy there. I mean, but if you, I don't know anyone who drinks that stuff. Um, if you get li- like Miller Light, which is just says light on the can, um, what that's good for, if you're going to be drinking all day, drink that. <laughs> because if you drink a Canadian beer, you're going to be drunk after two. <laughs> you know? So, strategy. Right. Right. Um, remember Upper Canada Rebellion? Yeah. Oh, my God. God, was that seven point five percent? I mean, that you, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe some of the Quebec beers we have here. Like, I mean, I know like an Imperial Stout gets into the twelve thirteen percent range. Yeah, but so we it, have one called uh, in Quebec called uh, La Fin du Monde. Do you know what that the means? The end of the world. It sounds like <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it kind of tastes like the end of the world. <laughs> well, so did Upper Canada Rebellion. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it was only, I mean, it was probably 6.5, but that was pretty strong at that time. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in a, but a good Canadian beer, I mean, consistently is around 5%. I think you're going to get that in the States now too, by the way. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm just kidding. I think it's a much, much better now, um, as you say. And I, and I actually like some of the commercial ones are not too bad also. And, and the same for Canadian commercial beers like uh, you know, Labatt. I like Labatt just fine. Uh, everyone just yeah. rags on it. I mean, that's a social class issue. If you drink Labatt, yeah. you are of a certain social class. And I, and I think there's kind of like a, uh, a backlash now where people are like, enough with the hops already. Could you just give me like a refreshing beer on a hot day? You know, you know <laughs> there's a lot of people like that. Good old Corona, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm very much like that. I prefer a good light beer that's refreshing. I, you know, yeah. there's all sorts of them out there that are really, really good. Mm-hmm. I don't need to pour it on my pancakes in order for it to be good. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I just feel like I'm just I'm just ripping into the U.S. today. Oh, but of let, course, we know about your maple syrup situation. Oh, do tell! I don't because it's only gr- <laughs> well, <laughs> your maple syrup sucks. You don't have real maple syrup. That's the situation. What are you saying about log cabin, man? <laughs> but no, I mean, we have good maple syrup. I mean, in Vermont, they make real maple syrup. Yeah. But it's well, yeah, Vermont. Vermont is basically Canada, as far as we're concerned. That's, there's a certain amount of truth to that too. <laughs> uh, whereas New Hampshire, right next door, ain't. Or you could say that's like Ooh, you could say that's yeah. Alberta East, maybe, or something like that. New Hampshire is that to live free or die? That's the one. Yeah, and they're very different states. Uh, you know, right smack dab next to each other. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's it's just one of those kind of quirky things. If you went back to, I mean, Vermont, if I'm not mistaken, was. When it came into the Union right after independence, or right after the the War of Independence, uh, they they came in free, like they came in no slavery. They were the mm. the only state that you know, slavery is illegal. Yeah, and they came in that way. So it, again, it's it, these are all unique unique sets of circumstances that make states and obviously provinces as well what they are. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so to go back, to go back to that trip with the tobacco spitting and and I I remember this trip very well. Um, and you usually have a much better memory than me, but I do remember it very well because, um, I think it was my first time going to Tobermory, Tobermory. And, um, of course, one of the big features there is that you would jump off the cliff into the water. Cypress is the name of that place. Cypress Provincial Park. um, Yeah. And, uh, and I guess everyone was kind of doing it. And I, and I was just like, no, no, I don't think I need to do that. And I remember it was kind of like, a, I, I, I'll, I'll always remember this. You saying to me, you don't feel any need to prove yourself that way, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, I really don't. And it was almost like it was shocking to you. that You were like, oh, you're like, you're pretty comfortable that you don't feel the need to, to g- keep up with the macho. Right. And of course, <laughs> on the other hand, that to do your own thing is to be you know the, the ultimate expression of masculinity and you know so it's like no i'm just not <laughs> right, gonna right. do that right um oh you missed some great jumping though tom i'm telling you <laughs> it was awesome no it's i, I it's it, it's pretty scary and people have died on those cliffs um doing- the other thing that was that, that was scary was the um crossing there's sort of that sort of like underground cave thing where you had to kind of make it through and um for someone who doesn't I don't, I don't know why, but I have a hard time opening my eyes underwater. Like it just, I find it hurts. Like I would never do that. <laughs> well, I, I will confess at this point, I did not do that. Oh. Um, it, it's, it, fear is the weirdest thing. You know, one man's fear is another man's nothing and vice mm-hmm. versa. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, having lived many years in various societies where machismo is the law of the land, like especially Mexico... I mean, you know, there, you meet guys that you stick a gun in their face, they don't even flinch, mm. and they see a bumblebee and run screaming in terror for mom. You know, it's just the weirdest thing. There has to, there has to be a release there. Um, yeah, it's just it's not a natural thing. Um, but there's something to be said for you know pushing yourself too, or yeah, not, or, or 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 just no, this is not for me. I'm not going to do it. Like you said, yeah. not jumping off that incredible cliff into the soothing blue waters that you're just like (laughs) suspended in bliss for all that time it's incredible you you missed out you know i don't i don't think i've ever done a a cliff dive like that 
I remember I I remember my cousin Scott last time probably the last time I was in Tobermore. Geez, that must it's getting to be a long time ago now. Um he sat up there and he sat up there and he psyched himself out and he did not do it. I mean yeah. it's you're pretty high up. Yeah, like I said, it's one man's fear is another man's nothing. And again, and vice versa. It's kind of a weird one. Yeah. All right. So the song you're going to play for us has something to do with fear, I hope. Um, <laughs> or it'll inspire fear in me, maybe. I think it'll inspire nothing but the, the opposite. Just acceptance. <laughs> okay. Wow. Love. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So today what we have is a beer barrel classic in which we take a look at the song that's way out of its temporal context. Oh my goodness. And Is that a polka? Let's roll out the barrel, the beer barrel polka. So, yeah, this is the, the beer barrel classic is something that is, you know, way before either of our times, but yet it somehow reemerges onto the scene for some reason. And today's song is one of those classics. So, let's go ahead and hear our beer barrel classic let's roll out the barrel please tell me you know uh, this song of course okay scared me for a second my mother would disown me if i didn't know this but i, f- I feel like it's probably something that I just know, like I know the melody in my head, but I don't actually remember here. I don't know if there's a million versions of it or... I don't know if... You know what I mean? Like I know the song perfectly, but this, the, the, this actual rendition of it doesn't sound familiar. Well, this is the big rendition. Is the original? Okay. Um, okay. This is the big rendition. This is, of course, Tiny Tim's version. Tiny Tim. Okay. But the song, yeah. uh, Tiptoe Through the Tulips, was actually composed in 1929. Okay. Wow. Yeah, here's okay. here's how this I mean this was his biggest hit. Um it, it, but it's one of those songs that's just a classic. I mean the the song became uh let's see it it made it up to set number 17 on the US charts in okay. uh whatever year they he it, like 1968 or something like that. Um so it was an actual hit. But yet the song just keeps reappearing in the weirdest places. Uh, including most recently on hit songs from Mars. Um, so um, it's just one of those. It's one of those songs. Like you know, it's you know, not everyone knows it to be sure, but there's a good chance of a certain age group, a certain type of person. If you put this song on at a party, half the place is going to be singing along. So it's just it's just yeah. one of those classic hits. Right, and. Um I mean, yeah, for sure. I know the song. It's such a weird vocal delivery. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it's it's a falsetto that just takes it to the stratosphere. Um, well, here's here's how it, was that Tiny Tim's thing? Did he always do that? Not always. Like he had a very okay. naturally uh, baritone voice. If you ever actually hear him sing in his natural range, it's you know it's it's very deep. It's you know. It, Helping hand, I will understand always, always. Days may not be fair. He was a big fan of 20s and 30s you know, classics. And so he, you know, before he's even famous or anything, and he starts to learn them and he tries to imitate some of the some of the vocalists. And what he discovered is he could actually get to those heights. And beyond. So he takes it beyond. Okay. So the song was written in 1929 by people named Al Dubin and Joe Burke. I've never heard of these people in my life. Me neither. Um, But obviously, or apparently, they were, you know, they were big songwriters of the day. But the song was first popularized by a guy named Nick Lucas. I'm going to play a little bit of his original here. Okay. Oh, that's so much nicer. Oh, that's that's a beautiful voice. <laughs> that's really, it's very soothing. <laughs> Tiny Tim took it to a new level. 
Um, yeah. So what he was doing is imitating that. Uh, yeah, I okay. mean, like, like the guy, this Lucas guy, Nick Lucas. Um, obviously, he had that. I mean, the style of singing in the in that era was, you know, pants too tight, shoes too small kind of voice. <laughs> and Tiny Tim imitated it and took it to the stratosphere, made it something right. unique. Um, imitate. You're right. It, they're not this. It's not the same rendition. The one is soothing, mm-hmm. as you pointed out. The other. Um, Soothing isn't the word that comes to mind for Tiny Tim's uh, rendition. <laughs> Attention grabbing, perhaps. Tension grabbing, um, overwrought. <laughs> yeah, taking taking the song to new heights. So hmm. it, it okay. kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting thing. Uh, it reached number seventeen on the charts when it came out in nineteen sixty eight. So, what the appeal was? Was it? I mean, this is a novelty song, is what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. it, at least out of its time context. It's a complete novelty song, but yet it was a number 17 hit in 1968, which makes it in its own right a hit song from Mars because the music in 1968 was nothing like that. Right. I mean, obviously you have your acid rock and all that stuff. I mean, not a lot of that stuff didn't chart, but some of it did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your Beatles, your Stones obviously did chart. This is just a total anomaly. Yeah, it is very strange in that era. Very weird. Which It's funny because uh, it gets me thinking about all the different styles of vocal delivery. You know, you think about uh, like a Johnny Cash delivery and a, a Michael Jack. You know what I mean? It's just interesting that there's all these different types of delivery that um, can be popular. Neil Young, <laughs> you know? Bob Dylan. Neil Young and, yeah. That, that works only for them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean Neil Young, my God, there's so many imitators out there. And some of them take it in new and interesting directions. Others do not. Uh, mm-hmm. You ever hear, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Damien Jurado? Yes. Okay, I, I might be misremember- misremembering his name. It's a Spanish surname, but it might not be Jurado. Okay. But anyway, I'm just throwing it out there with an Americanization on it. Mm-hmm. Um he is one of them that when it's not too neely, it's really good. I wish that I wish that I could float, I could float, float up But sometimes okay. it's too close, and it's like that just sounds like Neil Young or so, or a, a poor imitation yeah. thereof. So I mean, who who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's always an interesting thing. You know, sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's just such a part of, of what you're listening to at the time that it seeps into your songs and you don't even realize it, you know, <laughs> or, or just, or the, there's originality in the copy. Like, uh, I mean, Iggy pop was just trying to imitate Mick Jagger and wound up with Iggy pop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fun. That's kind of interesting, right? Because it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting that the people who kind of fail to be their idols end up becoming their own thing. That's much more interesting than what they were trying to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I mean, but there is, again, no one does stuff in a vacuum. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, even if you're, you're covering again, a a cover song that's too close to the original, it's not worth listening to. Yeah, exactly. Um, the one that just comes to mind off the top of my head is Guns N' Roses doing Knocking on Heaven's Door, where mm-hmm. it's just, it's a heavier, but really almost note by note copy. It doesn't, it, it doesn't quite work. Let's just put it like that. There, there's a lot of, of bands from that era who um, try, try to do covers of songs uh, and you just wonder, you just shake your head. Like, why, why would they do that? You know, um, I think, uh, you know, like uh, Van Halen doing Pretty Woman, for example. I mean, it's <laughs> like, why would you do that? And there's a whole there's a whole slew of them of that era. Um, I'm trying to think if Kiss did any, but maybe they actually didn't. I can't think. I mean, there's an imitated band that almost doesn't deserve 
to be imitated. I mean, I'm not even <laughs> yeah. talking about style-wise, but of yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Van Halen was just. I mean, that's that's a topic for a, a separate or two podcast because Van Halen was just one big set of paradoxes, one paradox after another. That you know, all these things that don't make any sense. But mm-hmm. I think what I understand about Van Halen was that when they did covers, it's it's because the band was so not getting along, they just finally had to throw something on an album. Mm. Like Diver Down it was, uh, I think it has five cover songs on it. <laughs> and their cover songs basically suck. I mean, they're just not yeah. that good. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I would argue that they're, they were actually a really good band in their heyday, and um, why? You know, why would you? Why would you do that? I mean, it's one thing. What's one thing to do to play a cover? I mean, sometimes that's even a dumb thing to do. But but to put them on a record, and f- you know, five of them—that's that's crazy. It's like the band was. I mean, the band was failing, and then they you know they came up with 1984. In yeah. I, I think yeah. that was all originals, but it, but then then they fell apart. The the tension in the band finally just. You know the weight of it just you know collapsed the band. Yeah. Um. But again, maybe we save Van Halen for another day, just because it's <laughs> it's such a, yeah. a far a far out topic that we can mm-hmm. spend a lot of time on it. Um. Yeah. But uh, yeah, if you're gonna do a cover song, you got to make it yours. You got to make it unique. Oh, or on the other side of it, think of all the covers of Bob Dylan songs that become the definitive version of that song. Mm-hmm. All along the Rotch Tower was it's definitively done by Jimi oh, Hendrix. Oh, that's very true. There must be some kind of way out of here. I kind of like when artists um, are willing to uh, concede that someone did a better version of their song. I think, um, I think there, there, did you ever hear the Ryan Adams version of uh, Wonderwall? I have not. I think it started as a kind of like a joke. I think he was playing a show and he just kind of noodled it. And it was kind of like a weird bluesy version of, of Wonderwall. And, um, it, it, they ended up, I guess someone, his manager was like, oh, you should actually cover that song. And it's actually pretty interesting. It's a very, it's a very different version on it. Today's gonna be the day that they're gonna give it back to you. By now you should have somehow realized. And I'm pretty sure that Noel Gallagher said to Ryan Adams, that's your song now. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> because he's he's not short on ego, that fellow. So um, for him to say that, uh, well, and the song that sucks. So I mean, let's go ahead and hand it <laughs> over. Well, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> oh, are, are them fighting words? Uh, well, I mean, I I have a little soft spot for Oasis. It's true. Um, I wouldn't say that. I mean, that song was just so horribly overplayed that it's hard to really listen to anymore. Fair enough. But I do think it's a pretty good song. I like some of their other stuff better, but again, that's personal preference. I'll just go uh, changing genre just a bit on the point you just made about the the cover version being the the definitive version, um, or a better version at least. Um classic uh yeah oh geez, I can't think of his his country of origin. I believe it's Colombia, uh Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, mm-hmm. He wrote uh, the, the hundred years of no labyrinth of sol no hundred years of solitude. Octavio Paz wrote labyrinth of solitude. They liked solitude okay. in Latin American <laughs> writings in the mid twentieth century. I might have that backwards, but at any rate, it took the guy twenty twenty years to write it or something like mm-hmm. it's it's just his definitive work and it's it's incredibly complex. The person who translated it into English. It had a hell of a task because it, it jumps around in time and things like that mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, mm-hmm. double entente with language that are very, you know, don't necessarily translate. So the person had to spend a ridiculous amount of time writing, you know, translating this book into English. And uh, Garcia Marquez, who w- was fluent in English, looked at it at the end. He's like, it's better than the original. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's quite a compliment to the translator. Oh, sure is. That's very difficult, especially with, you know, turns of phrase and things like that, to try and get that into another language. That's so difficult. Yeah, the, the if you have a, it's hard, I guess, in Spanish, for a native Spanish speaker, it's hard to read. But for someone spe- who speaks Spanish but isn't, Spanish isn't the la- native language, it's next to impossible because you're just going to be completely lost. Right. It's just one of those works, you know. Um, but yeah. again, we build, you know, we build on, on different things and, you know, sometimes the experiment works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, for sure. So you're, you're thinking Tiny Tim's falls short of the original. I totally, yeah, totally. Okay. I mean, I mean, like why, like how, how did that become a hit? Like what was the, was there anything around it? You know what I mean? Like, was there, was it in a commercial or, or something, you know? I don't know. Um, it's mm. just, he came out with an album called God Bless Tiny Tim. And the, the guy, <laughs> I mean, he was unique. Um, you know, this big strapping guy with who spoke in that voice publicly, but that wasn't his real voice. Later in his career, he would duet with himself, alternating between his baritone and that, that, that falsetto that's taking it to the stratosphere. They say our love won't pay the rent Before it's earned, our money's always spent Well, I don't know, we ain't got no plot Still I'm sure of all the love we got Babe, I got you, babe I got you, babe you know, his big moment in time that sort of clinched him in in popular culture was he got married on the Johnny Carson show, hmm. uh, literally got married, and they had something like 40,000 tulips on the stage in, in honor of his song. And it was, I think, to this day, in spite of the fact that, you know, it's in, you know, all the you know, all the different options you have, it's the most watched Tonight Show episode that ever happened. And that show ran for something like 50 years and through four different hosts, mostly Johnny mm-hmm. Carson. But it was the biggest the biggest show they ever had was watching him get married on it. So hmm. self-promotion was something he was fairly good at. Right. Um, and, um, you know, getting back to the whole falsetto thing, um, it's funny how... God, we always end up back at metal. Let's do but it. It's funny how falsetto was such a thing in in hard rock and heavy metal. It's sort of like hyper masculinized. <laughs> and then at the same time, this this very they they dressed like women. <laughs> like like what a strange phenomenon that is. Yeah the uh, the whole you know glam metal thing was. It didn't didn't make a lot of sense, but at the time it did. You just accepted yeah. it, and there was sort of an understanding that yeah, they this is a this is a show they're putting on, but they don't really dress like that normally, and they didn't. Right. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess it does, it's not it's not like it was unprecedented that you know in the sort of glam rock era, like Bowie obviously would would have been New York Dolls a huge player in that New York Dolls, and yeah. Um, so it's not like they they invented it, but it's a, it is a strange phenomenon. And um, the fans, you know, to- you know, as a metal, as as a let's say Motley Crue that sort of blew it open. Um, you know, Motley, you looked at them, it's like, hey, you know, the you know, the, you know they look like women or whatever, and the fans didn't dress like that. You, you might. <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah, that you might if you did, you would. You'd be dealing with the issues that uh, transgender people deal with, especially in the '80s, which it was totally unacceptable. Yeah. But yet, on stage, as part of this, as part of the, as part of this, you know, show, it was fine. It was, it was just a weird paradox. That that's a very good point, and I mean, I think, I think some fans. Yeah, it's interesting because I think if you went to a show at that time, you might find some fans sort of dressing like that. Uh, not to the same extent, right? But of course, they wouldn't do it, you know, walking around the streets. Although, you know, Sunset Boulevard, that whole scene, I think because it was such a scene there, you could do that just as a fan, and it and it wasn't, you know what I mean? Because there, was, it, it, you wouldn't stand out that much. But that's a that's an interesting point. But I mean, so many of the the 
the the big fan basis of these bands was like small town USA and small town Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, King Carden, for example. You'd see Motley Crue shirts out the wazoo. Yeah, and of, of course, and of course, if you see the band live, they don't quite look like that. It's it the, the album covers were, you know, exaggerated. Yeah, um, you know, everyone thought Vince Neil was a woman, just as part of the band. <laughs> Mick, Mick Mars, no, I mean. He, yeah. Man, woman, the guy's just plain ugly. Let's just face it. <laughs> um, they just there's nothing they could do with that guy. To his credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and did you watch that? Did you read the dirt, or did you watch the movie The Dirt? No, that came out. It's like a dramatization of their their story, basically. Um, and I think it seems like he was kind of like the. I mean, he was much older, right? Right. And he was kind of, he was the only guy who could really play early on, I think. And he was kind of like- Was he the connecting glue? Yeah, I think so. And he was also the most low profile in the band. Yeah. And he improved, and his skills improved too. I mean, as you listen to later Motley Crue stuff, I mean, they all got better. Yeah. If you got that luxury, you know, of all the time in the world to play, you get better. Like the Dead Kennedys is the best example there. It's like by the end, they were actually getting pretty good. Yeah, I mean, if you if you're if you're touring and you're playing together every night for a period, it 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 just happens. You, you, I mean, it's unavoidable, <laughs> really, that you would get better. And it's it's uh, you know, it's it's so hard uh, if you're in a you know if you're in a band, speaking from experience, to be opening for bands who are on the road every night and like the, you just they just blow you away because you you just can't possibly. I've even noticed it being playing with a band like three, four nights in a row by the, by the end of that, it's incredible how much better you are just, just in terms of communicating without words. And, um, so if you're just on the road, you know, like two, 300 nights a week, like you, you can't help it. You just get to be amazing at what you do, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a luxury that, you know, not every, not every, everybody has. And at some point you got to get a real job. And at that point you're, you, you may, your development may be stifled. Absolutely. If you're not given yeah. the, the total option to, you know, to just play all the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, they they got better. How'd we get on to Motley Crue? <laughs> oh, Falsettos, that's what it was. Falsetto. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, just back to Tiny Tim for, uh, let's see, a couple more things. By the way, uh, he basically died singing the song on stage. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's legendary. Yeah. I mean, this particular- song, How old was he? Oh, geez. He, was, he wasn't an old man. I mean, in his okay. 50s, maybe early 60s, but he'd had health troubles and he was actually warned not to perform. It was too hard on him. And hmm. I think complications from diabetes, perhaps. I'm not, I can't remember. Okay. But- he performed this song. It was like to, you know, to a nursing home or something, an audience of, you know, 20, 20 people or something. And he, he, he basically said, I you know, have to stop in the middle of this song. And he was asked if he wow. was all right. And he just said no. And one thing led to another. And he was dead by the end of the night. Oh, boy. Yeah. So he, yeah, he, he basically died, not literally, but almost died, you know, singing, you know, mm-hmm. singing that particular song, which was his signature piece. Yeah, I mean, some of his other his, stuff um, is is just he does a lot of weird cover songs, which was kind of his thing. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. And when she gets through, I'm on the highway to hell. I'm on the highway to hell. I'm on the highway to hell. 
Like he does a version of Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart. Um, and I, it, he does it in his baritone too. And it's, okay. and it's like, at that point, why not do the falsetto? If you want my body, how do you think I'm sexy? Yeah. You know, it, it could have been, but he's, if you want my body, you know, just kind of do it. Oh, weird. Yeah, he, he almost, maybe he'd abandoned the falsetto altogether by then, as just he'd had enough of that. If you want my body, and you think I'm sexy, come on, sure, let me know. If you really need me, just reach out and touch me. Come There's a lot of people who, um, who play right to the end. Um, Levon Helm was one. Um, and he, you know, that's, a, that's kind of like a debatable thing. Like I, I saw him play close to the end of his life and he was just kind of like a skeleton, you know, like he was just, and it was just sad. It was kind of sad to see him. Like, I don't, is it better to just kind of, to, you know, to drop out a little bit earlier and have people remember you a certain way or, you know, I mean, Tom Petty, I saw him pretty close to his death as well. And I mean, he was looking rough. He was incredible. No, he was incredible. Oh, okay. And I never would have known. And then, yeah, not soon after he was gone. Um, There's a Brazilian singer uh, named Cazuza who was, you know, a pop legend in the 80s and really innovative stuff, kind of brought bossa nova and rock together in unique ways. He was in that first wave of AIDS. He got AIDS oh, early, yeah. you know, early to mid eighties, and you know, basically, it's a death sentence at that point. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he he performed until he couldn't, probably within a month of his death. And again, every you know this, you know, this very handsome, uh, you know, rock star looking guy, just you know, the skeleton walks out on stage, and of course, everyone gives him huge applause and all that. But it's like, oh man, yeah, and then you know, it's just you know what's coming next. Yeah. Phil Collins, Phil Collins is looking pretty rough. I don't know if you've seen him lately. I think he's still been playing. I I heard he couldn't play on the, this proposed Genesis tour because he can't hold drumsticks. Yeah. He's too frail. Yeah. He looks very frail. Is he, what's, is he ill with something? I'm not exactly sure. He must be, but he, I just saw a picture of him and, and I was shocked to see how much he had aged prematurely. Well, he was no spring chicken back then either. True. He's, he always seemed yeah. a little older for kind of a rock icon. Well, he that that was an interesting case of his uh, his solo career just taking off, and I mean, it was terrible. <laughs> what his solo career? <laughs> yes. Well, as a career, it was legendary, but yeah, the I know. Music, well, it was huge, but music was. Mu- I mean, I haven't tried to listen to anything recently, but I don't think I would be thrilled. Uh, yeah, I never was a fan, honestly. I, I, yeah. I acknowledge. I mean, he, he, you hear Phil Collins sing, you know, it's him. It's he's got a sound yep, for sure that was unique, and and kind of his more than anything else is kind of wit and personality is what kind of what he what he was pushing out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Uh, I guess No Jacket Required's got to be one of the biggest albums of the 80s. Yeah, it was massive. But yeah, you couldn't yeah. pay me to sit through it. No. And it's funny It's funny you say that about his wit because I did listen to a podcast a few years ago with him in it, and I was pleasantly surprised about how funny and um, just genuine he was. Yeah, it seems like one of those generally good guys. Yeah. And apparently an amazing drummer. Yeah, the band, I mean, Genesis was just kind of a freak. Like, in 19, I just, in 1986-ish, there was a moment on the U.S. charts where seven out of the top ten songs of that week were e- was either by Genesis or a former member of the band. Peter Gabriel, <laughs> uh, Mike and the Mechanics, Phil Collins, oh, yeah. and then Genesis themselves, seven out of ten. We're we're we're, gen- we're members of that band or the band itself. Huh. Wow. Um, did I ever tell you that? I know, I know. I I kind of um, I think I gave you crap about not knowing who Daniel Lanois is. Did I tell you the story about his Peter Gabriel story? No, I can't remember. You're too busy <laughs> and give me crap about not knowing who some producer was. So. <laughs> 
Well, apparently he, um, I guess Peter Gabriel was legendary for being very distracted in the studio. And you, ha- you have to remember to, at that time that it, there was certainly no social media, no internet. I mean, it was literally just your phone or the pub that you would be distracted by or whatever. But apparently he was a huge procrastinator for writing lyrics. And uh, Daniel Lenoir was producing his album. And at one point, he, I think it was it was being done on a, a farm, like a barn. It was in a barn or something that Peter Gabriel owned, I believe. And, was this um, done in Canada? I don't think so. Okay. It's possible. I don't. I don't think so. I think it was probably in a remote U.S. somewhere, and um, or, or probably it was probably in the England. English countryside. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Um, and uh, he apparently um, not, not only did he lock him in a sort of like a stable, he he nailed he he nailed. <laughs> He nailed him in there and said, I'm not letting you out until you write the lyrics for this song. <laughs> and apparently Daniel Lanham almost got fired. It was very close. Well, uh, then he threatened to light the hay on fire. And <laughs> so Peter. Yeah. Did. And I, I, I think it was, you know, it was um, in that era of, uh, you know, big time. So oh, yeah. obviously that would have been a huge comeback record, I guess, for Peter Gabriel. Or, or, or I don't know if he. Or breaking into the big time, if you will. Yeah, so huge record for him. So maybe if it hadn't done so well, then he would have fired Daniel Lenoir. But I guess uh, the results were were good. Right? Is that it? Was Big Time the one? Which one had Sledgehammer on it? Was that So? Yeah. Or was that? Um, I think those are the same record. Okay. I don't know what it's called, but I think the, Big Time and Sledgehammer were the same. I think the album's called So. Yeah, that sounds right. And then he had a follow up album a few years later. Uh, which I can't remember the name, but it had the song "Stand Back" on it, which was kind of a cool song. Mm. Was it? Wasn't it? Um, didn't he? Didn't he have a, a duet with Sinead O'Connor? Interesting. Yeah, he's one of those guys. I mean, if you look at the look at his music, it's very complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and he has a unique not only you know, vocal sound but a unique musical signature too. It's it's very it, stuff's very complex. Lots of you know major, minor, seventh stuff, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Not. It's funny how yeah, it's funny how sometimes you. Um, songs seem fairly simple and then you start to dig into them and you realize oh wow there's a, there's actually a lot going on there yeah which to and to the fan you wouldn't really know necessarily you know but it is amazing when you dissect some songs how complex some pop songs can be and and of course the flip side of that yeah it, it sounds complex but it's simple mm-hmm. like uh one song, I mean, this is often rated, you know, you see this on lists of the worst song ever made kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> we built this city on rock and roll. Oof. Yeah, yeah. I agree with the assessment. It's the worst song ever made. We can talk about what makes, what the criteria are, but again, very talented band. If you look at the the, mm-hmm. the structure of that song, it's very complex. The chords are very complex. Um so I guess you know part of the being, being the worst song ever made it had the potential to be something good. Yeah. And I remember my hometown bar at closing time would play that song repeatedly to get people out the door. <laughs> that was their technique to do it. All of a sudden you hear you built this city and you knew it was closing time and you, and the, and the and the, the the big lights the big bright lights come on and then you're like oh god this place you know what I mean? I remember you know I, closing closing clubs up and and suddenly the lights come on and you just look around and you're like oh my god this is so disgusting yep i remember being in a bar i'm not going to name any names but you you realize that you in the dark it looked like there was like a spotted carpet to it there was beer stains. But you realize when the lights come on no it was gum oh god it was just like you know like little polka dots of gum all over the floor <laughs> so gross well, gross and weird. I mean, what kind of audience did they have in their teen, teeny boppers or something? Yeah, no, I don't know. It's weird. It would have been in the era of smoking, and so maybe you'd smoke and then you'd chew gum to not have terrible breath. I don't know. So you're trying to hook up at this place. Yeah. I'm trying to <laughs> I think, think so. <laughs> if I knew Ottawa bars, you know, 
What was the one? I saw you guys play at one, the Duke of Wellington. Duke of Somerset? Uh, wow. When would um, when would that have been? 95-ish. I think it was Tuke. Oh, Tuke. Wow. So it's, it's, um, I've been to Ottawa in years. Yeah. Wow. Um, it, I mean, the Duke of Somerset, we did play there. Um, is there a road in Ottawa called Wellington? There is, yeah. Well, maybe it was something on that street then. I'm just, that's, Wellington's mm. coming to mind. Okay. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it was a basement place. You guys opened for another band. The girl. Duke of Somerset was basement. That's, that's probably what it was then. If I had okay. Duke and Wellington remembering. Yeah. It's been torn down. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it was no fault of Duke. <laughs> Uh, well, who knows? Um, I think we, I think that band took, we, there's a great venue in town called Barry Moore's. And, uh, I feel like we played like one of the last shows there or we're supposed to play right when it closed or something like that. And it's kind of opened up, but it was beautiful theater. Oh, cool. Theater that, that it was just, um, just poorly managed and. I loved going there though, and I got to play there quite a bit. And uh, I saw Radiohead there on the the Benz tour, which was unreal. Uh, a lot of a lot of big bands played there. You two played there, I believe. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, um, it was it was it was a, and it was it was like a a little bit big for Ottawa, you know, um, to get enough people out. But eh, I shouldn't say that it was at this at the time when it was thriving and there were good bands. Every day of the week, usually. Right, that was the '90s. I'm guessing when yeah the band mm-hmm. thing was just so big. It's true. Eh? It was a very different time. Everyone was in a band in the '90s. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. I remember playing two shows a night, run, running from playing one show and then running to another one and hope hoping to get there on time. And yeah, it was fun. Yeah, far out. Yeah, it, but you say the scene there is just not what it once was. No, um, I mean obviously right now. It's, yeah, I mean pre even pre COVID <laughs> even. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know what it is. I mean, I think for a while we were sort of sustained by being halfway between Toronto and Montreal. Hmm. So that if you were playing, you know, most bands still play both Montreal and Toronto uh, who come up to Canada. Um, and so a lot, of, you know, a lot of bands would just kind of make it a you know, a stop along the way. Um, so I'm not sure why that stopped, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, Ottawa's it's, it's getting better, but it's, it's a little, because there's so many nine to fivers in Ottawa. I I have a theory about this, that in order to have a vibrant nightlife, you need a, a pretty large percentage of your population to not be nine to fivers. So people in the service industry, because they're not working regular hours. Right. So, so, their Tuesday night might be like everyone else's Friday night. So then if you get enough people to do that, then you can support more culture during the week. And you know what I mean? So that's my whole theory about that. That, And because Ottawa is such a government town, so many of the people are nine to five, it's hard to support um, an entertainment industry in the same way. I get it. Makes sense. And in live music just isn't what it once was. It's just kind of a, that was, it's changed. Yeah, how do, you, how do you mean? It's just not as common. You don't, you go, I mean, even in the years pre-COVID, you go to a bar where they're at one point guaranteed to be a band, a live show This that was got fewer and further between. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's never it's never gone out, but it's it's certainly not what it once was. Let's just put it like that. Early, you know, yeah. There's, there's so um, my impression of it. Yeah, well, and there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, one of them being that people stopped buying music, which made it much harder for bands to even exist, right? Um, but in a way, when you see all the things that you can do in a studio now, uh, well, not even in a studio, in your in your bedroom, um, I think the live music is more important than ever because it's real right it's one of the few things that are still real and i i always think there's just there's just something about that where especially a band that kind of pushes and improvises and things like that you're kind of you're kind of watching something that 
that could be a train wreck or it could be amazing. Um, and so that to me, that's much more real than a recording because I think we all know by now that you can auto tune your voice and fix, fix the rhythm and you can do anything. Right. So I think it's just one of the few real entertainment media outlets that are still exist. Yeah. And, and, you know, recorded song and a live song. I mean, it's just like, they're just two different beasts in this day and age. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I, I mean, me personally, I've, I've, I don't like recording. (laughs) I much prefer playing live and I like the aspect of feeling kind of afraid and improvising and taking chances and it's scary, but it's also fun. Thrill seeking. Yeah, I guess. Like we talked about, you know, in a previous episode about cliff jumping. <laughs> yes. You didn't need well, you didn't but, need to prove yourself on that cliff because you were doing it on the stage. <laughs> you didn't have to overcompensate like the rest of us. There you go. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> that's an interesting theory. There's something to be said. Yeah, take chances at the right. You know, take take them at the right time for the right thing. Mm-hmm. Like you, you remember when I broke my knee. Yeah. That was just me being, you know, taking a chance, walking across a rapid river on top of a waterfall and then slipping yeah. and going over. Um, there, yeah. there was nothing, there was nothing to be gained by that chance. It was just daredeviling yeah. and, and clearly, you know, 20 year old overcompensation for you know, yeah. not, you know, being a rock star millionaire by the time you're 20. You know, just yeah. you know, never dream of being so silly now. That energy could have been channeled in much better ways, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I had to learn the hard For way. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, take the chance. But there's a, there's a there's a middle ground there, obviously. You know, like I I as you know, I like mountain biking and I like downhill skiing, and there's a lot of risk to both of those things. Oh yeah, o- outside of of your ability even um i mean particularly in skiing like you could get slammed by someone from behind and doesn't matter how good a skier you are um that's that's dangerous you move fast on a ski hill and well, um, sonny bono he, lost his life really oh you know that yeah he he no. hit a tree oh and wow I, apparently uh, you know a pretty you know a, a good skier but something just went awry well, slammed into a tree and died that's the thing is that it's those little things, those little things that go awry can happen at any time. I, I'm, I'm conscious of that when I'm mountain biking and, you know, usually everything's fine and I can manage it. But when something goes wrong, it can go terribly wrong and you don't, you kind of get separated from it because you're, if you're been doing it a while, you kind of feel like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And I know what I'm doing, but it doesn't take much to be, be like a little patch of sand or something. And you're going fast and you're in trouble. It happened to a friend of mine. Yeah. He was a great biker. He hit it. He went into a dip and he hit a patch of sand and he slammed into a tree going fast. That would suck. So, yeah. He also owns a skateboard shop and uh, he's he's broken his body so many times. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> through those two. Skateboarding through, Mostly through it. skateboarding. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's true. Those are, those are, those are. Every anytime you do anything like that, you're going to take a certain amount of risk. Like I, I did rock climbing for years, and part of the reason I did it, it was one of these love hate things, where I mean I, I wouldn't sleep the night before. I'd be so afraid of what would happen the next day. Oh wow! And that's not good a combination because then you're not cognitively there to be. You know, you should be in in best form when you're doing it. You know, it's true. And, but yet part of it was knowing how frightened I was going to be to, you know, to do the challenge of it. And it's great fun too. Uh, sometimes the real risk in rock climbing is getting to the rock you're climbing. It's like you walk along some goat trail. If you fall, you're dead, even though you're not, you're not strapped in anything. I think it's, it's interesting how, how different people's level of risk they're willing to take is. And it's funny, you know, it's just so, it's so all over the map. Like I was thinking about, you know, oh, it'd be fun to be like a pilot or something like that. I would never leave the ground if I if I had a, if I had my own personal plane. I would just be checking everything a million times. I would never be able to leave because I'd be like, oh, did I check that? Did I check that? Yeah. And you think about people who who can just handle pressure. I, I'm not very good at that at hand at being in a high pressure situation. Some people they they just thrive in that sort of thing. And you know, pilot pilots like 
piloting, you have like 400 people's lives in your, in your hand. I'm like, that's terrifying to me. And it's amazing that some people, it's just like, oh, it's just my job. It's just what I do. Yeah. I guess after a while that would just, that'd be, have to be how it was. Yeah. But they have to start off somewhere too, where, you know what I mean? Like you, you need to start off at a point where you're comfortable with that. It's one thing when you've been doing it for 20 years and you've never had an incident or whatever, but just to have the, the, the courage to do that in the first place is kind of amazing. Well, uh, Henry David Thoreau in, uh, at one point said, uh, you run as many risks as you sit. Uh, mm. meaning, you know, some, this something horrid could happen. You know, you're, you have a heart attack sitting at home or a meteorite hits your house or whatever. Absolutely. So yeah. just, it's kind of like get out there and do something with your life. That's the way I interpret it anyway. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, and it, and it, it's funny if you actually start to look at the stats about, you know, how people get in accidents and things like that. We we would never drive. <laughs> you oh, know no. what I mean? It, you, if, it's, uh, if you weren't so used to it, every time a car would approach in the other lane, you'd be screaming in terror. Exactly. But we're just so used to it. And the same yeah. thing with rock climbing. I remember using that as an analogy. It's like, no, once you get used to it, then you start to not do all the checks and stuff that you'd normally do. And that's when you get into trouble. Yeah. Like most accidents, rock climbing occur at the very top and at the very bottom. Uh, right. Either when you're just starting out and you don't take it seriously, but you're still 10 feet in the air. Or right. when you're finishing up and you think you got it and, and then you don't. Well, interestingly, a huge percentage of car accidents happen right by your home. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh, most drownings occur with, in swimming pools within three feet of the side of the pool. Yeah. Or something absurd like that. It's like just reach over, it but and I grab it. Yeah, but I wonder about the the driving thing because is it just because you're so familiar, you're not you're not paying attention. You know what I mean? You're just like it's just like autopilot. I guess that's probably why well, it goes. That it gets worse than that with texting and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, where people are like you know half in the other lane half the time, and so you, you need to take this more seriously. Yeah. I think I, I got rear-ended by a guy once and I'm pretty sure he was texting when he, he didn't admit to it, but he did apologize to me and he said I was being an idiot. He didn't exactly tell me what that meant, but that's what I assumed happened. Yeah, that makes sense. Hopefully you paid for your damages too. It's my brand new car. I'd had it for three weeks. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, that would be a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah, I mean, things suddenly get real it's just like you you're going along the highway and it seems so smooth until something happens that's not supposed to and you and then you suddenly realize how fast everything is you know antelope runs out in front of you or or whatever <laughs> deer here that's the big that's the big issue here deer here um no moose uh there are some moose here but you don't see them very often i did i did go on a trip up north once with my friend trevor alguire and uh i remember seeing um i saw something in the road and it was so big i couldn't i couldn't believe it was a moose it was like taking up the whole road i i was shocked at how i it was the first time i'd seen one um uh, in nature like that and I, I was i was shocked by how big it was we actually have elk here they're not as big as moose mm. but if you see it, it's like oh my god that thing's huge yeah yeah well just going full circle here um tiny tim took a risk <laughs> took a chance but you're saying it was it was not a worthy effort at the end of the day <laughs> Well, apparently it was. What do I know? Well, I mean, he huge, he made a career out of huge it. Hit. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, you know, I'm like, I can't uh, say anything wrong with that. Yeah, I don't quite understand it, but you know, that's the theme of our podcast. Yeah, hits <laughs> hit songs from Mars. <laughs> well, any any final words of wisdom? Any sage advice? Um. Well, apparently. Sing more falsetto.
Thanks for tuning in to TNT's Hit Songs from Mars. We hope you enjoyed yourself and learned a few things along the way. For a complete list of songs you heard in this episode, visit us at hsfm.buzzsprout.com. We hope you'll support the artists we featured by purchasing their music. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and you'll receive new episodes as soon as they become available. We've been recording all winter and spring and have many more surprising hit songs to share with you. While you're at it, if you could give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcast, that would really help us out. We would like to thank the Reverb Syndicate for providing the theme song for our podcast. They have an extensive catalog of tunes just as rockin' as the one you hear here. Here, here. You can find them at thereverbsyndicate.ca and on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp, which typically pays artists the most. We would also like to thank Eric Minot for designing our podcast icon. You can find his design and illustration work on Instagram at Graphics. That's M-I-N-O-G-R-A-P-H-X. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and at hsfm.buzzsprout.com. Feel free to disagree, praise, correct, and chastise us. We would also love to hear your idea of a hit song from Mars and why you think it fits the mold. Even better, if you felt like recording a voice memo and sending it our way, you can email us at hitsongsfrommars at gmail.com. We may even feature it on the show. Until next time, Earthlings. Earthlings.